Thanks for announcing that you're hitting record. I'm just gonna, <laughs> as of that, I'm just going to try and make sure there's nothing funny in this section for you to <laughs> hilariously, have I got news for you style, put in before I say hello and welcome to Football Unfocused. Hello, podcast world. Hello, stratosphere. To our millions and millions of listeners, I one day will say subscribers because believe it or not, one day you'll be paying to listen to this absolute shit. Uh, <laughs> my name is Mark, my co host is Matthew, and we present this uh, podcast when we can be asked uh, to talk about uh, the great sport that is football. Matthew, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. I was thinking about. Um... Ali G, when he says, how big is infinity? And he goes, well, it's it's an, it's immeasurable. He goes, is it bigger than a million? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he <laughs> if I get... sat here all day and just kept saying million, is it billion than yeah. a gajillion? He, he said, no, he says a gillion. I think he says <laughs> a, a gillion. gillion. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he goes, there's nothing bigger than a gajillion. <laughs> yeah. 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 What the fuck has that got to do with uh, the introduction you're, to this podcast? You're talking about our millions of... Oh, I see. millions yeah. and millions and millions. Well, once we get gillions, uh, then <laughs> I mean, Christ knows. What do you think? What do you think we could uh, charge for sponsorship of a podcast that reaches a gillion people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'm sure we'll find we'll out. We'll find out once we hit a gillion. Yeah. We just, we just maybe, you know, a monkey each. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least. At least, at least, yeah, yeah. So on our quest to reach a gillion, we're nearly there. We've, I mean, I think about 15 people listened to the last one, Matt. So, you know, it's the one small step for man between 50. Your, you say 15, I say a gillion, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, potato, potato. Anyway, good. Good, Matthew. Uh, I'm going to begin, as ever, with some very leading questions to learn more about you as a character. Matthew, you're a vegan. So therefore, I'd like to think you eat a largely natural diet. A key part of that diet is fruit. What's your favourite fruit, Matthew? <laughs> um, sultanas. Is that... That's a very interesting answer, Matthew. <laughs> Can you explain? Or raisins. To elaborate. Raisins or well, which is it? Or do you like a combination of the two? Yeah, fruit mix. Fruit mix. <laughs> so essentially, not. I wouldn't describe. Would you describe that as a fresh fruit, Matthew? Because I would describe that as a dried fruit. Yeah, it's on the drier side. <laughs> yeah, it isn't, isn't it? Okay, let me just write that down. Dry fruit. <laughs> dry fruit. A raisin, I I understand, is just essentially a, an old withered grape, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not wrong, am I? No. No. So that's your favourite. Interesting. And do you eat them on a regular basis, Matthew? If I'm feeling a bit, you know, stodgy. Yeah. <laughs> you knock back the raisins and sultanas. So would, you, would yeah. you say you always have a supply of raisins and sultanas in the uh, in the house? Yeah, or um, I've got some figs and dates. Oh. Predominantly, they're obviously all dried. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. Quite sweet, actually, aren't they? Yeah, they get... Date, dates are, are sweet. I know, I shouldn't probably eat as much. Actually. Well, they are. It's a natural product, so how much harm can it do? <laughs> I don't know. Good. It depends what I do with them. Good. So, so your classic one. Well, yeah, that that <laughs> that's something you could almost say that about anything, couldn't you? 
<laughs> Good. And, and uh, so you're, you're kind of, you know, your classic fruit and veg stall, apples, oranges, bananas, uh, lemons, uh, plum, yeah. plums, you know, uh, nectarines, all that. You, you're rejecting all of that in favour of the, uh, the raisins. Uh, I like melons. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Matthew, you're a well-travelled man who's been to many places all over the world. You're very lucky in that respect, being, you know, an upper-middle-class toff. What is your, what is your favourite oh, ever holiday destination? Uh, whenever I, I... I always say to Jo, wet and wild, and she always finds that so funny. Sorry, what, what is that? It's a water park. I think I've seen a film with that title. But I'm... <laughs> That's, I, think, she, I think you and her must have seen the same film. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she, she always gets a smirk. Where like is Wet and Wild? It's Orlando. Right, so so again, it's, it's a surprising answer. Of all the places you've been in the world, you've, you've cycled across India, you've travelled to the Antipodean nations, you've been all across uh, Southeast Asia... But the favourite thing you've been to is a holiday, a water park in uh, Orlando. Can I just clarify that? Is the answer to that? <laughs> is the answer to that question yes, yes or no? Well, seems to put it like that. No. <laughs> Good. And uh, well, that, that, I do have one more question, Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew, would you describe yourself as being <laughs> as being good or bad at DIY? Why would you think I would be good at it? Matthew, you... we're not coming at this with... I'm not coming at this with any preconceptions. It, it's not about what I know about you. It's what the listeners know about you. <laughs> Matthew, I'll repeat the question. Would you describe yourself as good or bad at DIY? Um, well, I guess I would say I'm un- untested. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Have you ever attempted to do any of the following? Put up a shelf, yes or no? No. Uh, hang a picture, yes or no? No. Uh, fix a <laughs> light fitting, yes or no? That's quite hard, bloody hell, no. Change a light bulb, yes or no? Change the light bulb, yes. Ooh, so does that come with the DIY? Yeah, well, I'm wondering that. I really have strayed into the, the, the real en- entry level, day one, page one. Yeah. <laughs> If it does, you're a fucking master at yeah. that, aren't you? Well, I've turned on a switch as well, if that counts. Well done. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you've mastered that turning on and off the lights. Good. So I'm assuming all tasks around the house, minor repairs for which it would be ludicrous to call somebody out, you either uh, rely on your esteemed partner or yes. ju- it just goes unfixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jay's very good. She's got a big box of tools. <laughs> Here endeth the questions on that outrageous uh, d- sentence that I think was intended to be somehow mucky, um, as as is always the case with this clown. Uh, good. That's that, that, that ends the section of the podcast entitled Matthew's Questions. Now let's talk about football, Matthew. And um, obviously it's been the international break, um, uh, which is shit. For everyone who actually enjoys um, football. Well, if you enjoy watching police get beat up, you might have quite... Yeah, you might have quite enjoyed it. Or if you enjoy <laughs> watching, you know, Scotland, you know, miserably 
struggling to beat the Faroe Islands. I mean, succeeding, don't get me wrong, mm. um, but, you know, just a, an attritional dull game of football uh, and just watching Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> racking up more and more international goals uh, against, like, substandard opposition. Uh, then, yeah, amazing, <laughs> fantastic. Um, but, it really, I mean, look, let, let's let's be honest about this. It's, it's a pain in the backside when... <laughs> when it comes along and you have to watch these awful poor quality qualifiers. I know that, yeah, maybe watching a bit of old school hooliganism in the, uh, <laughs> in the Wembley crowd with the Hungarians the other night was, uh, I mean, it says something about how uninterested I am in these, uh, these qualifying games that that actually made me switch it on. When I heard that in the radio, I was, <laughs> I was in the kitchen kind of half listening to the radio whilst doing dinner and they went, Oh, it's all kicking off in the crowd. And I went, help. <laughs> TV on now, now. Yes, I know it's shit, but trust me, there's something happening. And I know I watched it for about three minutes and was frustrated by how little they were showing. But I wanted to see because I had there were punches being thrown and everything. I'm not yeah. condoning it, by the way. But I mean, let, let's be honest about this. If it, if there's a ruck, you know, no matter how despicable the ruck, it doesn't mean you don't want to watch the ruck. <laughs> no, we all no, love watching a ruck. You don't want to yeah. be in the middle of the ruck. No, but you no. want to watch the ruck. It was it was pretty nasty. It was, I mean, it was just you know, it's one of those situations where you're like, well, that is obviously not the individual policeman's fault. It's just poor planning, and you feel really sorry for them in that situation because they just obviously weren't. Prepared. Yeah, who'd have thought that the Metropolitan Police would uh, make <laughs> such a balls up of quite a you know a basic <laughs> opportunity to you know control a crowd? I will say one thing though. I I, I take your point that. Um, you know, possibly they were caught unawares. But when you consider that how much noise there was after the Euro- the European Championship final, which was only in July, about the, the, the shambolic and chaotic scenes, people force it, fighting with stewards, forcing their way into the ground, and how that was considered to be a, a, a disgrace and an embarrassment for the FA and for England as a nation... For only a few months later, the first time they've played a you know an half decent team in a qualifier that ground and had a had a big crowd there, for similar issues to to happen again. All right, maybe I mean I don't know I wasn't there, but maybe the getting in and out of the ground I haven't heard there are any issues there, but it has all kicked off in the stadium and uh, I don't know. I mean I think based on the fact that. It got quite unpleasant for the away game um, over in um, Budapest between Hungary and England. It would be reasonable to expect that some, you know, similar or retaliatory action was was likely. Um, And it did feel that they were caught with their pants down once again. And if you're Mm. making decisions on who to pick to host the 2030 World Cup and you can say, okay, what's been going on? when England have been staging games at Wembley recently and you're the first uh, drop down, you know, the first thing on the uh, on the scroll down menu or on <laughs> YouTube is just, you know, people knocking the shit out of each other and fighting with stewards and barging through barriers and ta- taking on police. You might make you think twice. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and let's face it, England have a, an uphill battle anyway to, um, to win over FIFA to make any attempt to... Uh, to actually host a tournament, you know, they've been turned down. They they didn't they missed out 2006. They went for and then obviously uh, 2018. So 
I'd say it's a struggle at the best of times, but now that you're kind of giving the rest of the world uh, an excuse and all right, this particular occasion wasn't caused by English fans as such, but it's still, it's kind of on our turf and it shows an inability to, to cope. So, um, but what's quite interesting is the reaction to that and the, how that reflects the the kind of the state and by st- the nation state of Hungary kind of um, opens the door to what what I do kind of want to talk about properly, which is um, the takeover of Newcastle United by the uh, Saudi Investment Fund. That that if this was kind of recorded, that um, Saudi Investment Fund really should be in, in the biggest uh, of quotation marks. Because if you um, peruse the headlines in Hungarian press yesterday um, about the game, or essentially Hungary has been slipping slowly but surely into quite an authoritarian, hard right-wing regime head- headed by the despicable Viktor Orban for quite a few years now. And that that attitude, that culture that approach to the rest of the world kind of fuck you attitude is very much now manifesting itself in the behaviour of the football fans, the refusal to take the knee, the rejection of even the kind of idea behind taking the knee or showing any respect for the um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then the fact that the, the regime has such a controlling influence over their um, domestic press that I believe there's only one... Um, still functioning um, anti-government or independent even um, newspaper in Hungary, which is the only one that led with headlines about how the behaviour of the Hungarian fans was disgraceful and you know reflected poorly on the on the nation, etc. The rest were um, essentially saying that the English police are brutes and thugs, and that they you know the, the Hungarian fans were having to. Um, stand strong in the face of this discriminatory action, and that the stewarding and the um, and the police was all designed to get retaliation from what they felt had happened to them in um, in Budapest, um, and then just f- focusing on the game as well, and 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 and, and kind of implying that the action was also uh, the action of the police and the stewards was also kind of bitterness that they were in for a tough game on the pitch and didn't you know didn't manage to win despite the fact that it happened mostly in the, in the first 10 minutes before any scoreline would have been evident uh, <laughs> anyway um and that does it, well i guess maybe maybe it's a little bit of a, a stretch to say that there is a link but when you when you are dealing in football with regimes that are kind of increasingly or even you know long established oppressive and it it really you you really i do think that football has a responsibility to examine its relationship with that and there is no clearer example than the news in the last two weeks that after what 18 months of struggling and you know sort of battling to prove uh you know credibility or legal um legal authority or whatever the case may be uh, with the Premier League and the government that this group has been allowed to take over Newcastle United. Now, one of the things that I noticed straight away when this happened was there was a certain kind of constituency among the um, 
not not so much the the press because I think to be fair they've covered this quite well and they have been genuinely um, sort of you know critical and you know very open in their criticism of of um, what this kind of regime stands for, but I think kind of in in social media circles because things tend to be so tribal. I think some Newcastle fans are immediately kind of on the back foot and saying that this is just bitterness. It's because you you fear now that we're going to be this mega club. Theoretically, now they're going to have access to more money than any other club um, in the world. And you begrudge us that. And that's why you're kind of, you know, um, throwing stones at us. But I think that's completely inaccurate. I think if any, any club was taken over um, by this lot, uh, concerns would be raised. The fact that it's Newcastle, if anything, from my perspective, um, makes it worse because I've always had a great affection for Newcastle. I think that, you know, they're, they're an amazing... I mean, Matt, you went to uni in Newcastle. You know what a city it is. You know how there are people there who live for their football club. It's a place where football dominates so much and their stadium being slap bang in the city centre. So on a match day, it's absolutely... It's amazing, isn't it? Like, it is genuinely amazing. Um, and... It has been a, I mean, the the, un, the underachievement of a club that size that are, is as fanatically supported as they are, that gets 55,000 people with pretty much every home game, um, no matter how they're doing, pretty much no matter what division they're in. And despite the fact that for the last 13 or 14 years, they have been run into the ground by a, a, a horrible bloke in Mike Ashley, a man who's... The, the staggering arrogance of a man to own a football club and to, to seemingly take pleasure in having no regard whatsoever for the opinions, uh, the hopes and fears um, of the, the the sort of paying public um, and to just... Ha- to, to hold them in complete contempt for all of those years and to use the football club as a way to essentially... Um, make as much money as he possibly can in terms of a sell-on profit line, show zero ambition, zero excitement, make managerial appointments that are almost designed to piss off his own supporters. That's how little he kind of gave, gave a shit about them. So I think, you know, it's a club that deserves respect. I think they're a club that a lot of neutrals have an awful lot of love for and that they have definitely suffered. They really have suffered. And they've not really been any good since uh, the day Bobby Robson left, which I think was about 2004. Um, and they had a fantastic few years under Bobby Robson where they were consistently a Champions League qualifying team and had some really good uh, runs in that competition. And then obviously before that, in the mid-90s, the glory days under Kevin Keegan, the the sort of phoenix-like rise from the second division, the redevelopment of the stadium, the buying of all these players uh, with Sir John Hall's uh, money and, you know, getting Ginola and Ferdinand and then, um, you know, Shearer and Asprey and all, all these amazing players. Um, and falling at the final hurdle, throwing away the league title in, you know, having built, I think it's the biggest lead that any club's ever had and not won the league in 95-96. So all of that makes them a compelling club to watch from the outside looking in. They're a club that deserve respect. And I am delighted, if you take away who's bought them, I am absolutely delighted that they are potentially now going to be able to compete at the top because they really deserve to. And it's much better, from my perspective, as someone who, who has quite a, um, 
shall we say, a, a traditional view of I like to see the proper, historically big football clubs with big fan bases um, thrive. And, you know, whilst it's fantastic if a, a Bournemouth um, get a Russian owner and make it into the Premier League, you know, I'm not really sure how much... They've got kind of no history behind them and I'm not sure how much it really adds to the Premier League, them being in it or them being competitive in it with 10,000 people turning out to watch them every week. Whereas the tidal wave of emotion with, you know, set against the context of all those years of underachievement and suffering... Uh, that Newcastle United, the soap opera that is Newcastle United, it'd be amazing if they, you know, can now. I mean, their training ground is an absolute disgrace. It looks like a, um, you know, sort of um, a half decent sort of state secondary schools uh, <laughs> like cafeteria with a, you know, a couple of pictures. It hasn't been invested in in so many years, um, and you know, apparently the stadium, there are parts of the stadium, even though it still looks beautiful, there are parts of the stadium where you've got leaking roofs that have been neglected and not fixed and, you know, some modernisation. They, they've even got um, uh, the possibility to further expand that. So if, if they, that, there's a top level that, that spans about a third or half of the stadium. If they went all the way around, you're probably adding another 15,000 seats to an already large um, capacity. So, you know, it's, it's it's fantastic and, and and also it's good for one of my obsessions the geographic spread I love to see you know, and I bang on about this a lot I think there's way too many clubs in the Premier League in London I think it's fantastic to have a, a proper mighty powerful football club in the North East which has got it's such a hotbed of football talent in terms of players but also you know the population and their you know fanatical devotion to, to the game so I want to sort of make all of that clear that you know, I couldn't be more happy for a new... They're, they're a club that, you know, I, I always kind of, you know, unless they're playing Liverpool, I pretty much want them to win, um, uh, you know, in, in the, the, every Premier League game they play. I, you know, I re- really can't, can't help liking the Geordies and, and the club. But I, I suppose you it's getting to a stage now where... Although taking taking the point that maybe it is too maybe it is too late to be kind of moralistic in football, you know, maybe football lost its ability to make moral judgments on owners a long time ago um, when it started to allow kind of nation states and oligarchs. Um, what's that noise? It's my buzzer. Oh, go on, you get it. Yeah. So so you yeah you ask yourself the question whether before kind of going into one about. Newcastle being taken over centrally by the Saudi Arabian state, and it is the Saudi Arabian state, no matter what bullshit um, caveats they they come up with, whether it's kind of too late to make moral judgments about this and to feel kind of queasy about the idea of this money coming from a regime like that, because you think about how Abramovich acquired his wealth and how essentially that is that was state assets that were owned by the people that he just happened to be in a position. He didn't earn that. He didn't build it himself. He acquired it because he was in a position to make the most of the way that the market suddenly turned into the Wild West and see state assets for himself, billions and billions um, worth of state assets to illegitimately acquire wealth and then spend it on a vanity project. And that was, you know, this, will, I guess we'll get, into, get, get onto sports washing. That wasn't sports washing. That was just a rich man with a toy. Um, but it was the first example of hugely wealthy, influential 
foreign owners um, using the Premier League uh, to make kind of vanity purchases. The Manchester City thing kind of took it to a new level because that that really is that state money. So that's the Ab- the government of Abu Dhabi using their resources again to um, to invest their wealth and to kind of improve their their reputation um, around the world and and you know you um, promoting the Etihad um, brand and clearly you know with Abu Dhabi and also with um, Dubai who I believe own Paris Saint-Germain there are some serious ethical questions to ask about those regimes and how they contradict with some of the stated aims and objectives of um, the Premier League and what they like to be seen to promote. Is that any different to um, kind of speculative um, billionaires uh, from the US who use saddle um, debt onto an institution you know, much as I hate to admit it, the largest, certainly in terms of financial power, football club in this country was bought by the Glazers um, in a kind of, you know, a, a debt. I don't know what the, the financial technical term is, but uh, but uh, essentially a, a, a system whereby debt can be kind of loaded onto the club you're buying as part of the purchase so that you're limiting the amount of initial investment that you're putting on. I mean, it's just cra- crazy. I'm not intelligent enough to really understand how that works, but I know that that has been a huge bone of contention and has caused the fan base to splinter and to even set up a, a rival kind of club that they say is because the the, the, the the proper club has kind of lost its soul. I mean, so so you do have to ask yourself, well, did the kind of, you know, did the moral... Um, uh, did the horse bolt so many years ago that it's not worth kind of losing your mind about this? And when you think about some of the other places and the companies that the Premier League have accepted money from, they're tying with betting firms. I'm, I don't know whether anyone um, listening to this, who, who would ever listen to this, watched the Paul Mercer documentary this week that was on Monday night on um, on BBC One about uh, his destructive relationship with gambling and how it's been a, a you know an addiction and an illness that has blighted his life and even now he he just you know it's the hardest thing he's ever had you know because he was also addicted to famously booze and drugs and it's the betting that still gets him it eats away at him and they did some really interesting experiments on that documentary where they were looking at his brain activity and the way that it's stimulated by um, different um, sort of images and, and, and sights and he was kind of mildly enthused by seeing like a beautiful waterfall or an amazing landscape or a beach or a forest or something and when he saw an image of a like a poker table or a roulette wheel his brain's going absolutely mental um it, like it was terrifying to see and that that and you know, gambling addiction is a huge, huge growing problem in this country. I think it, it, it could, you know, end up being a sort of epidemic style crisis. It really could with people, uh, you know, I think you're going to see as a result of that a rise in the suicide rate. You're going to see, you know, people who are uh, personally bankrupt, losing everything, ended up homeless, losing their families, all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, Paul Merson has lost, personally lost he said £7 million over the years. Now, bear in mind, he'll have earned a lot playing football, but he was slightly before the era of the type of money they're earning now. He was never earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. He was probably, 
the peak of his career, maybe on 50 grand a week, something like that. Enormous amount of money, but still. He's now living in rented accommodation with his partner and his kids, and he has... Um, he spent the deposit money from the last house that they had been saving up to buy on gambling. And as a result now, the only the, the sort of condition in which he's able to stay with his family is if his partner controls all his money and essentially gives him pocket money that she can trust him to spend. But that is all the result. I mean, you could see the impact it was having on him and it was tearing him apart. And that is not an uncommon story. There are footballers, but most importantly, there are fans with you know far less disposable income who follow the game and are subjected on average statistics tell you it's something like every uh, eight or nine seconds if when there's a live football match of images of you know the logo of a betting company or something enticing you to to bet and the kind of reaction um and the attempts at legislation by governments who our government who claim they want to do something about this um has so far been absolutely pathetic i think that a report is due imminently um into into whether they are now going to properly implement bans on you know betting firms sponsoring premier league um club shirts and tv advertising because um, really in my opinion it should be exactly like cigarettes where it's that it's that destructive to society and to your health that any advertising of it should be banned but you know again they're so far down that road with the betting companies financial the financial model is so reliant upon that money that it's taking a huge risk and i hear people say well the premier league's so popular and so powerful that that gap will be filled. Another industry will come in and start spending huge amounts of money on sponsorship. Maybe that's the case, but it is a risk. So you look at it from that perspective and you think about the business model of the Premier League and how it is um, essentially a kind of, you know, a Thatcherite free marketeer's dream. You know, think about the background, the culture from which it was set up that time in the late 80s, early 90s and the type of thought that was kind of ruling the roost that, at that time. And, and, Lack of regulation has been one of the ongoing themes in the in the sort of thirty odd years since the Premier League was launched, and some people would argue that that's one of the things that has enabled it to to flourish. But clearly, one of the impacts of that has been that the bar required to succeed in terms of investment has just risen and risen and risen as everything has gone up. You know, the cost of primarily purchasing and paying players, but ev- everything. You know, everything has become more expensive. The staff required within a club, all of the technical and, and physiological staff um, that are now employed in every single football club. The amount now that clubs charge fans to go in and and uh, are just, you know, sit on a plastic seat and watch a game. An unimaginable increase since the early days of the Premier League and the late days of the old uh, football league you've now it's it's become a lot of people argue a middle class pursuit because the days of the sort of you know the working class man or woman um sort of finishing a week in a you know a manual job and on those relatively modest wages being able to then spend that on their leisure time watching a football match when that now that ticket will now cost them sort of you know 50 60 70 quid as opposed to you know the equivalent of a you know three or four pound as it would have been in those days um, you know, that, you know. Again, that 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 horse has well and truly bolted. But you come to a situation like this where a great football club in this country, its takeover is piquing the interest of Amnesty International. 
you know, when they're saying they want to sit down with the Premier League and the owners of the other football clubs, where I believe all 19 other owners of the um, Premier League football clubs have registered some sort of displeasure. Um, and where kind of anecdotally, you just hear the absolute horror stories that are directly linked. And this is, and this is the thing. If it was just a group of investors who happened to be from Saudi Arabia, then you'd, you'd say, okay, well, look, as long as you made your money, honestly, it's not your fault where you're from. You know, it shouldn't hold that against you. That should be no barrier to buy, to buy a football club. Do what you like. Fair play to you. Well done. But it isn't, is it? This is money. Everything in Saudi Arabia is essentially controlled by the, the royal family and the, that kind of, you know, group at the top of society, the ruling elite who control everything. There's no freedom of speech. There's no media freedom. You're not allowed to politically protest. You're not allowed to write anything critical about the regime. You're not allowed to be in any way different. You can't be homosexual. There's no religious freedom. Um, the, the, the Their record on uh, human rights, crime and punishment is outrageously awful. You know, they still have public beheadings that people are still lashed for um, crimes, often publicly... La- I mean, what kind of a regime lashes people? And that's not even getting into the fact that, you know, the undeniable fact, this isn't speculation, it is fact, that within our lifetime, probably the most high-profile atrocity in in our lifetime was the 11th of September attacks on the World Trade Centre. And Every single human being involved in the hijacking of the planes, the flying of the planes, the funding of the groups that flew and hijacked the planes is Saudi Arabian. Every, every element of it is Saudi Arabia. And they've never been held accountable for that or kind of paid for that. And it's, you know, everyone knows why. It's a tired old argument. But it is, it, it is because they have got so much financial control over countless countries in the all, all over the world we rely on them for um, resources and we also rely on them for the money they spend buying our military hardware so as a result of that we'll overlook all sorts of of, the, of these atrocities that we wouldn't overlook for any other state with which we didn't have these financial ties and you, you've then got to think, okay well, some people will say but that's got nothing to do with football you know you've got to separate politics from football. And I do see that point of view, but unfortunately you can't when it's something like this, because this is an investment fund that is controlled and directed and managed by the Saudi royal family. But Mohammed bin Salman is the the executive chairperson of this fund. This takeover has been allowed to happen, theoretically, because the Saudis have given assurances in writing to the Premier League that the decision making will not come directly from the Saudi state. But surely that is that is the the you know what was the old Monty Python thing is this is we're not the the Judean uh, Liberation Front we're the Liberation Front of Judea it's it is it's just semantics it is it is essentially saying oh no we, you know we're not this isn't the Saudi state owning this this is an investment fund for the Saudi state even though they are exactly the same thing and I'm sure that some smart lawyers have found a way to change the terminology and allow this to happen but that is the undeniable fact they've put Amanda Staveley in in charge of like the the PR side of things she's doing the talking you know I'm sure she's going to be extraordinarily well remunerated for that 
and fair, fair play to her. I'm sure she's very, very good at her job. And I also don't doubt, by the way, that they will do an, an incredible job of running Newcastle. I, I truly believe they will. They're making all the right noises. They've obviously seen how um, uh, the Abu Dhabi group have transformed Manchester City, not just as a football club, but as an area. How they won people over by, you know turning what was former wasteland into a f- genuinely affordable housing for Manchester City fans to live in, had they essentially turned their training ground into a stadium that most lower league clubs could only dream of owning. And, you know, they transformed their... The, um, uh, you know, Manchester City were in a bit of a state financially before... Um, they, I don't think they even owned their own stadium. I think it was run as a municipal resource as a legacy of hosting the, uh, the Commonwealth Games in... What was that, 2002, was it? Around that time, anyway. Um, uh, and uh, so they've got com- complete control of their club. They've invested very, very heavily in their, their academy and their youth system. So they've now got, you know, they're producing players that are the, is the envy of, of, of every club in the country and, and over the world. So from top to bottom... They have got the best of everything and they've done it in a kind of quite a gradual way. And don't, you know, again, it's easy to look back now and to think that it happened overnight. No, it didn't. They, that, I think that, that, that takeover went through in, in 2008. They won their first title in uh, 2012. And the, t- the, the sort of profile of player that they were buying gradually increased as they became more credible as an option. And I'm sure that Newcastle will do the same. All these people get overexcited. Oh, they're going to be in for Mbappe and, and Messi and Neymar. They're clearly not going to do that. And if any of those players even considered uh, going to Newcastle now, I think they would be essentially chucking their careers away because Newcastle are not... They're so far away at the moment from being a club that can compete at that top level that it's going to take them a minimum, I would say, of four or five years to be in a position, certainly to challenge for, uh, you know, the title. But even the resources and the transformation it's going to take to even be able to challenge for the top four shouldn't be underestimated how long that will take because that's becoming that competition is becoming more and more intense and the six or seven clubs who are kind of forever in that conversation just getting more and more and more powerful year by year. But there is no doubt that Newcastle are now being run by people who are determined and have access to sums of money that make even Manchester City kind of quiver. Um, so there's an absolutely no doubt, and, I, and I'm certain that they are going to do a great job of this, and they are the, they're canny operators who know how to kind of, you know, use their money to appear benevolent and to appear passionate about sport. You know, don't, don't forget it was only, what, a couple of years ago that they successfully staged the... Uh, rematch between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz Jr. And apparently that was a that was a, a kind of massive s- success. And at the time, there were people making the same objections with regards to human rights, etc. But that that went down well. So they will do. They will do a good job. They know what they're doing. You know, these people have got serious amounts of money. They'll know who to put in what position to make the right decisions to to build and build and build. And I'm sure they'll take the fans with them and they'll do a fantastic job. And I, there's, it's no judgment against the Newcastle fans. And I don't think anyone can blame the Newcastle fans for being excited. They would see it in quite simple terms. Look, we can't control who's taken over our club. You know, the where where the, where the money's come from. This has been approved by the Premier League. Who's to make a kind of, you know, moral judgment? You know, the Premier League sold its soul down a river years ago anyway. All we know is that the misery of Mike Ashley is over. And, we, you know, we've now been run by a, a, a regime that will spend 
you know, incredible amounts of money to transform a civil football club. And fantastic. And I'm sure that will go well. But it, aside from that, it is difficult to see it as anything other than despicable. You know, money, money that is used by people that implement a regime that is so oppressive that women have only recently been allowed to start driving. And that's treated like that's, that's, oh, you know, such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we're letting women drive, you know. So they're, they're direct links to human rights atrocities, terrorism, suppression of free every single conceivable freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of sexuality, freedom of protest, freedom of um, religion. You know, because th- this is the thing as well. I, my, my understanding is that they even... You know, they're, they're an Islamic regime, but they are hugely oppressive against the, I think it's the Shia minority in that country. They're hugely oppressive against those people. They're also responsible for the um, the bombing and, you know, humanitarian crisis in Yemen. One of the world's worst. And it, it, it goes, I always think it's quite mysterious the extent to which that goes unreported. Because we're talking about, you know, people are, starving to death people are you know they're being deprived you know food and water and they're being bombed the shit out of day after day by the saudi arabian regime using uh, uh military hardware purchased from great britain and the united states it's if this, you know if this was russia bombing the shit out of i don't know like ukraine or wherever the fuck else russia you know, likes to, you know, flex their muscles and, and inflict misery. We'd be hearing about that, I'm sure, an awful lot because there's lots of people who've got a vested interest in Russia remaining the bad guy. And I'm not saying for a second, by the way, I'm not being an apologist for Russia. They do in many, many ways very much deserve to be the bad guy. But they're not the only bad guy, you know. And it just it just feels wrong that this is this is a country buying a football club and using their uh, resources not to make the lives better for their own people, not to kind of, you know, offer freedoms and liberties to people, not to, uh, you know, loosen the, 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 the shackles of oppression, but to sports wash by improving their global brand, um, buying a football club and transforming them into a... It, it, undoubtedly, they will be in a successful entity eventually. It is funny, though, isn't it, that probably one of the least reputable and likeable owners in the history of the Premier League has sold the club finally to, and even worse set of individuals, you know, the the great Barney Roney, (laughs) uh, the Guardian journalist, wrote a brilliant article uh, a week and a half ago saying it was something like, you know, what's worse, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of cruel vendor of um, cheaply produced tracksuits <laughs> or or the regime responsible for, well, I think last month alone, something like 27 public beheadings, uh, you know, which <laughs> which is worse. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the Premier League. But, but hey, Matt. You, you said you were going to keep this to half hour. Yeah. <laughs> 53 minutes. Yeah, but at least five minutes of that was you answering the door. <laughs> Well, I won't include that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there you go. So get, we can get this down to 45. Get this down to 45. So I'll just say, uh, I'll just say goodbye and we'll see you next week. <laughs>